Well, hello, Line Podcast listeners. We're getting this one out early so that you can all enjoy, as we can as well, a long weekend. Happy Easter, happy Passover, happy Ramadan. It's a quiet week, not a ton happening in the news. We cover a lot of the important stuff. We also eventually come around to agreeing perhaps we should be outsourcing the country to NASA. All that and more on the latest episode for the long weekend of the Lions Experimental Podcast. Well, a long weekend dispatch. Uh, getting it out early because we're going to take the long weekend off, so we'll get the podcast out kind of as quickly as we can record it, and we'll get our uh, dispatch out uh, early, Friday, and then basically everybody, us, every, all the readers, listeners, viewers, just have a great long weekend. That's my, that's my main Please item. Continue, the continue to pretend that you're Catholic. It's great. May I suggest a ham and scallop potatoes, in which case, unless you're a religion, I'm not, I'm not such a thing. No, no, but that's okay. You can pretend you are and still, you know, tell your kids that the Easter Bunny is going to poop little chocolate Easter eggs around the, around the yard and that's eat a tenet of Catholicism. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, close enough. Um, unless, of course, you're you're Jewish, in which case, uh, happy Passover. Passover, and you definitely will not be eating ham and scallop potatoes. So fair enough. Um, or if you are Muslim, in which case you are celebrating Ramadan right now, I believe, in it which case also, pardon? Starts next week. It's an all, yeah, a lot, oh, a lot. Start. I thought it was happening right now. I keep on losing track of Ramadan because it keeps on moving around the year. Um, I, but I, I think, think Passover just started, Easter starts tomorrow and pass, uh, Ramadan starts next week, I think. Well, I, you know, you, I'll take your word for it. Anyway, you also will not be eating ham, but everyone else can enjoy a nice honey ham, scalloped potatoes and peas, which is the appropriate feast you know, of Easter. You know, it was funny. Um, about a third of my family is Jewish. Like my branch of the family is not, but like a big mm-hmm. part of it is. And at our, uh, we hosted the last Christmas and uh, uh, the, the Bubby brought her homemade latkes, which are amazing. Like they mm-hmm. flew yeah. just off the table. They're amazing. But they were stacked up on a serving tray right next to the spiral ham. Oh, dear. And I was yeah. just laughing because I was like, hey, this is multiculturalism. It's like yes. we've stacked our traditional jewish cuisine right next to the ham and she just shrugged and she said well it's meat and potatoes she goes we don't need to overthink this it's just meat and potatoes so i was like okay yeah that'll work um i would say overall this was a fairly quiet week and i think it's a fairly quiet week because it's a long weekend coming up and i don't think there was much going on politically anywhere there's a reason why i spent about uh two thousand words analyzing to potential libel suits which i do need to get into a little bit because this was pointed out to me on twitter and this wasn't clear in my article and that is uh handong actually has filed his suit uh daniel smith has only threatened to file she's gone and said to the to the cbc if you don't retract her story by april 28th i am filing a suit against you but that she's only made the threat so she hasn't actually filed suit i think she will eventually and i don't think this actually changes the argument of the column because in the column i go out with a point and say most threats and suits die on the vine. They don't go anywhere as well as well we know. But I, I do think it might be worth pointing that out in the dispatch. Just a quick little clarification because I didn't clarify that in the actual main column. Uh, yep. Okay. I, yeah, I, I don't think that changes your argument either. But uh, sure. Yep. Yeah, update the timeline uh, if you prefer. Um, the only thing that's really been burning me up this week. Um, is Twitter. It, people, people, people fighting with you on Twitter mostly. Um, I don't know, that feeds me more than it <laughs> fires me up. Um, 
See, I, I have really cut back on my Twitter use. I have deleted it from my phone, but I, when I'm actually at my computer working, it's open. Mm-hmm. So if I'm fighting on, if you see me fighting on Twitter, you know, I'm actually just pro- procrastinating from real work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so there was a report this week. It was from the Ottawa Citizen and it got picked up across post media that Canadian forces deployed in Poland. Uh, training Ukrainian forces, and I believe also uh, providing some logistical assistance for the supplies we're sending to the Ukrainian forces, mm-hmm. um, do not have a cook with them. Uh, okay, fair enough. Like, I'm actually not freaked out about that. Like, some people sure. are going, why are we sending troops abroad without logistic support? Guys, we sent them to Poland. Like, it's it's a NATO country. It's the infrastructure is intact. Like, they've, they've got an Arby's, you know? Like... Yeah, and I mean, Polish food is good. Like, you know, I don't know if they want to be eating Canadian B-Rat slop. Um, I don't know. What, I don't I'm I don't, trying to remember what the Canadians call B-Rations. But basically, yeah, okay, we could send a cook or you could eat pierogies. Like, it's not. <laughs> or you could, like, literally eat KFC because, like, this is. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, anyway, so what the uh, the Canadian government did is didn't send uh, a, a kitchen unit with the, with, uh, the company that's there. They told them to feed themselves, build a government. And you know what? You and I have done this. You know, when you've taken some trips, when I've taken some trips, we keep our receipts and we just build them. And our next invoice where you pay, we just pay out the balance, right? This is something any small business can do. This is something in theory, any government can do. But even though the deployment has been going on like eight or nine months, I don't, I honestly don't remember exactly how long the Canadian Armed Forces, Department of National Defense, the federal government, exactly how you want to apportion the blame is up to you. Cannot reimburse the payments. Like the bureaucratic ability to do that has collapsed. Sure. Great. So, so it's a healthy, non-broken country. 100 guys on a rotating basis, obviously, in Poland, three squares a day, putting it on their plastic, personal yep. plastic. Yeah, great. Filing the paperwork to get on their next paycheck to get like the that amount sent to mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. it's not showing up no nope. so these credit card bills of these guys or or, or girls boys and boys and girls i got it doesn't matter personnel who yep. are in poland so basically they're lending they're credit card debt yeah essentially they're lending the canadian government money on yeah. high interest credit card payments uh and they're not going to, and they're lending the money for free because they're not going to get that interest money back oh, of course not yeah. No. And, yeah. you know, this is like one of the things that we know, and we've studied this, like this, this is not me just pontificating here. Family separation during long duration military deployments is really hard on everybody. Mm-hmm. The, the deployed service member, the spouse at home, parents, um, young children. This is hard. Like we ask a lot of these people, even even when they're not in battle. And on top of that, we've decided you should also have the financial insecurity of, as you said, advancing the Canadian government on high interest cards, thousands of dollars. I mean, can, can, can the, can the military members deployed go on strike until they're properly reimbursed? Is that something they can legally do? No, but what they can do is not reenlist. And we already have massive recruiting and retention problems in the canadian armed forces that the canadian Mm -hmm. armed forces i know this through both official and unofficial channels are really worried about this i told you this recently in a a different context 
I have never, I cannot tell you any other previous time in my life when my sources within the military have been as freaked out. And they're not freaked out about battle. They're freaked out about the fact that the forces are in a state of like collapse. This ain't going to help because right now, let's say you're thinking about joining up the forces and you're reading, hey, you know, travel the world, meet new interesting people, get screwed over by your government's broken accounts payable department. Yeah, like you're not going to sign up. If we were to send someone for nine months overseas as like the line, we would not get away with not reimbursing them their meals. No, and I would also have a nervous breakdown if if I was the guy not doing that. Like, yeah. So, you know, country's not broken, Matt. You're just you're just a conservative hack who used to work for Post Media, and therefore the American. I see you've been reading my Twitter replies. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Here, here's the thing. This is like. I could just sigh heavily and yell swear words and I'd feel a little bit better. But let me actually try to give you a serious response to this. Okay. Deliverology, when the Trudeau government was elected in 2015, it was smart that they were talking about. That like that actually was shrewd. It recognized a problem. When these guys came into office, they were like, you know what? Deliverology wrecks governments. Canadian governments we knew had major deliverology problems. They were right to put it out there as a problem. Uh, Ultimately, of course, as the record shows, they fucked it all up. So deliverology turned into a punch word, Mm -hmm. a punchline under Trudeau's watch. But okay, at least when they came into it, they knew what the problem was. But back in 2015, if you were to have asked me my assessment of kind of Canadian government competency, we could have pointed to failures within the government scandals things like that but i would have said overall whether it was federal provincial or municipal that the deliverology failures were when we tried to do something new right when it when some new government comes in or old government and goes hey we're going to revamp how we do things we would face plant we wouldn't get it done but the stuff we were already doing would continue just kind of humming along in the background because there there was muscle memory for lack of a better term, uh, and the government would be able to keep doing what it had already been doing. We're losing that. Yeah, we're losing the ability to do the basics. This is not, yeah. and Reimbursing soldiers abroad is not, that's not, that shouldn't be complicated. 100 personnel, thereabouts, in this company. Yeah. Has overwhelmed the federal government's ability to process per diems. So... This is not an example, kind of like what I was saying, of us trying to do something new, and it's hard. Governing is hard, people will tell us. Per diems aren't hard. This is not an example of us failing to add something new. This is an example of an existing capacity atrophying and dying. And that is a is a signal that is, I think is very different, and it's a bad signal. I have nothing more to add. Yes, that's that's a little terrifying. Also, can I point out that if the uh, Canadian Armed Forces collapses, a lot of our actual capacity to manage natural disasters... Everything else. ...goes with it? You know, probably... Look, I mean, eventually people are going to write books about this, but I, I, I don't think we need to reach for big, dramatic explanations here. I think during the pandemic... 
so many people left jobs. Yeah. This is this this is essentially the same problem as crime in Toronto. Why did crime in Toronto get so weird and crazy all of a sudden? It's you know a, a 10% increase in crime coupled with a 15% decrease in capacity yeah. and collapse. Like that it, yeah. it's not they're, they're not dramatic shifts and and changes. It's just everything was working to such an efficient level before the pandemic that yeah. it didn't take much to throw wildly out of equilibrium. We had spent generations right-sizing services to exactly match the problem. And I yeah. think probably in the case of the armed forces, it's probably a little bit different because I don't I don't think we're actually working them that hard these days compared to some of the previous paces. This sure. is just people retiring and re- leaving and there's no one to replace them, right? This is just key capabilities well, atrophying well, and dying. But also the part of the reason is because we're not working them, right? Ironically. Possibly. Right. Yeah, possibly. Like if, if if you don't have active stuff going on in a big organizational way, if you if you don't have soldiers on the ground in Afghanistan, you you know, there's nothing to recruit to. You know, there's no aspirational yep. mission to recruit to. There's also, you know, the ability to just do functional daily stuff disappears because we haven't done it in 10 years. Right. Um there's another story, and look, I, I'm always very mindful. Um I mean, I'll just break the fourth wall from it. I'll just tell the listeners and the viewers directly. We get a a ton of articles that are local. Um, People know you in Calgary, so they send you Calgary stuff. People know me in Toronto, they send me Toronto stuff. If it's a really interesting piece, we might take it. Most of the local stuff we don't take uh, because it's local. Like the line is national publication. Do people don't want to read about like some local municipal thing? I'm gonna I'm gonna bend that rule just a little bit here. I'm just gonna mention something to you. So the uh, the mayor the mayoral race to replace John Tory is now officially underway. That began a couple mm-hmm. of days ago, mm-hmm. uh, and the uh, the declared candidates are now kind of releasing uh, their plans. Uh, Brad Bradford, that that's actually his name, Brad Bradford, um, is a Toronto City Councilor. Uh, he's running for mayor, and he was quick out of the gate with uh, kind of his uh, early marquee proposal, which is making the TTC safe. Mm-hmm. And he has four proposals. And they're fine. They're all they're all totally good. I don't I don't object to any of the proposals here. But as I wrote in a column this week for TVO, they're not new. Like this is not like, hey, like bold new solutions to to the problems here. It's basically we're gonna put fifty extra cops in the system. That's like plank three. Do you, I don't know if you know this. The Toronto subways are equipped with uh, cellular technology. Mm-hmm. It is. Like the equipment to bring the cell phone network into the underground subways exists, just no one ever turned it on because none of the um, the big telcos wanted to be partnering with it because they like to operate their own networks. So this is basically like we have a functional cell phone network buried under the city that is not functional because no one, no one no connected one their networks to it. Yeah. Um, the other solution was to create a new agency to deal with mental health crises. I don't think what Canada needs right now is another layer of agencies. <laughs> are they going? Are they going to? Are they going to have a former Supreme Court uh, yeah. justice uh, formulate an inquiry in order to create a committee in order to decide that there are problems? A task force, yeah, yeah, task force. There you go. You know, a task force led by another eminent Canadian. Uh, an eminent Canadian, <laughs> David Johnston is going to go right from China interference to this. We are running out of eminent Canadians. You got to tell them that we're starting. No, we're to just going to have to lower our standard. No, we're going to have to start digging through the OC pile. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, look for anyone with an order of Canada, you're up. 
Um, one, I do think I, I, a, a serious, I guess I'm, I, I laugh. I know what you mean, but I'm going to make a serious comment about that. It really is sort of like a heritage moment, part of Canadian heritage, which is basically to go like, the, the, let me use the Toronto transit thing as an example. Okay. In the city of Toronto, we have hospitals, we have mental health crisis centers, we have special units of the police who are in, in designed for mental health crisis interventions. We have a TTC security force, the special constables. We also have private security that patrols stations. And now we also have, um, we've surged extra TTC workers into the system in uniform, basically to keep an eye on things. And on top of this, we have CAMH, the Center for Mental Health and Addictions, uh, Addictions and Mental Health in Toronto. We have all the private sector mental health supports you could ever hope for. We have homeless shelters. We have halfway houses. We have uh, supportive housing. We have social housing. Now, obviously, you can argue we don't have a, we don't have enough of these things, but all of these things exist, and they're not working. Is so let's create that... something new and just add it to the mix. Until, like, it's a really interesting comment I think on humanity, where you look at a bunch of things that aren't working, and instead of going, we must correct whatever the failures are here. We just have to create something new because we'll get it right that time. On that so, note, or a slightly slightly related note, it does seem to me that there are some uh, public policy ex experts, particularly on the drug file, who are pointing to Canada and saying, okay, so more harm reduction and throwing more social workers into the system appears to be contributing to things getting worse, <laughs> um, especially from the sort of the Stanford, uh, 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 I think Stanford has a, a drug policy school and they've had a couple of uh commentators who commented on the hub and also on twitter and basically noted that you know if you were to create a uh, uh how should i say this a safe supply a drug user friendly kind of environment with a good quality healthcare system universal healthcare access you know you you, you couldn't in the real world paint a better picture than canada and yet uh, the overdose rate in British Columbia is, is worse or as bad as something like the, the shittiest 5% of U.S. states. Like, it's, it, it really is quite astonishing. And yeah. on top of that, uh, you know, I'd point to, I think we've we've talked about this a little bit before in the past, but, you know, I went down to uh, British, or I went to back to uh, Vancouver uh, for the first time in a couple of years. Um, my grandmother died, so I went down her, for her funeral. And just out of curiosity, I drove through Hastings and Maine, which was sort of the infamous intersection for a lot of drug use in, in, in Vancouver. And I remember I used to go down there somewhat frequently throughout the 90s and early 2000s when I used to live in Vancouver, or was growing up in Vancouver. It's gotten worse by any measure. It is worse now than it was in the 90s before we had insight, before we had all the harm reduction measures. Like it is, it is objectively shittier the tent city has gotten larger. The violence and the open drug use has gotten more and more obvious. So like the, to me, it just sort of, I think that people are starting to have this question about what, what constitutes success under these policies. So, I mean, especially as BC is starting to decriminalize drugs, what are your metrics for success and failure? That to me is the question. Is there a point at which the tent city at Hastings in Maine grows to a point where the government would say that these policies are counterproductive or, or is, is a tent city could is the tent city could could it hypothetically just spread through the entire down down core and people would just still say that these are effective measures that we're going to adopt 
is there a point at which, like, is there a number at which the government of British Columbia would say this overdose rate is proving to us that our policies are ineffective or not? Like, to me, that's what's what I find so interesting about all of the harm reduction measures, the safe supply stuff, the decriminalization stuff, is that nobody seems to have pegged or thought about what the metrics for success and failure are on mm. any of these files. And as a result, there's there's it all falls back into this highly emotive rhetoric. Oh, you don't you're not for safe supply. We can't even call them overdoses anymore. No, no, they're drug poisonings, you know, because no nobody is overdosing on heroin. No, 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 they're accidentally getting poisoned by fentanyl. <laughs> you know, like it's there's a whole it all becomes these emotive rhetorical battles because nobody's actually s- suggesting these hard metrics for success or failure. Um, okay, I honestly don't know enough about drug policy to have any intelligent response to that. It's no, not... but, but to me, it gets into the capacity issue because I mean, well, if you're if you're yeah. if your crime is increased by 10%, your capacity is decreased by 10%, you're introducing um, sure. some really experimental, you know, drug policies again in, a, in an ordinary time, maybe those experimental drug policies don't screw up the equilibrium, but maybe in a period of, of reduced capacity, they do, you know what I mean? Like. Um, All of these things start to compound on one another. I, w- I would say even me not being in any way uh, any kind of expert on drug policy, I would just say what you're talking about here, we can easily tie into a pan-Canadian failure of measuring inputs, not outputs. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. it doesn't matter how big the tent city is, because what the politicians will campaign on is that over the last four years, they've increased support of funding by 20%. Yeah, that's right. And and that's what they'll they'll campaign on. Hey, it's like, hey, like you're you don't care of like there's a bunch of people dying out there. Like it, it like the city's turning into a cesspool. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Under my administration, we've increased funding 20%. Yeah. How dare you suggest I don't and take then, this and then, seriously? And then and then the and then the problem becomes an unfalsifiable issue, right? Because yeah. the you can't you can't say well maybe you needed to increase the funding by fifty percent or maybe your entire approach to this is just fundamentally philosophically wrong, but that's that becomes either taboo to even mention or it becomes unfalsifiable as a, as, as a thing because you're not actually measuring outputs. No one has decided. We we can talk about throwing more money and more and more systems and more agencies into these problems, but until we're willing to talk to talk about what the outcomes we're hoping to achieve are and can come to cons- some consensus on the outcomes, it's all futile. Yeah, and I I think we don't even always measure the outcomes. Right? No, we don't. Like, no, that's right. Yeah, would, are, are we trying to reduce drug overdose deaths by thirty percent, or are we trying to throw more money into harm reduction programs? Um, yeah, and it's funny because the other the other thing that's been proposed in Toronto again by Councillor Bradford, and it's not a terrible idea. He wants to put platform barriers in. Uh, in our subway stations, platform barriers are, well, I mean they're they're basically walls at, at platform yeah. level that that means you can't access the tunnels uh what or the track what happens is their doors the trains pull in they stop the train doors open and the barrier doors open and you can walk in and out this is a totally cool idea no problem great no one will get thrown onto the tracks anymore but i've now i'm now old enough and i've been in journalism long enough to have the experience and i'm sure you've had some version of this where you read something and it rings a bell but it was so long ago you can't quite place it. So I read, I read that Toronto uh, Councillor Bradford wants to install platform barriers in the uh, TDC subway station. Even I like, vaguely remember something about this. I vaguely remember. Yeah. Yeah. 
so I, it takes me a while to find it on Google. Like I really have to go looking for it. And what I find is that in 2009, yeah, two kids, kids were shoved onto the tracks. They were okay. They survived. And then there was a discussion in 2009 yeah. about whether or not we wanted to install these barriers and it never ended up happening. But yeah. here's the kicker. In 2009, if we had chosen to do it, the estimated time was between 13 and 15 years to do it across the entire system, which, first of all, is fucking insane. The idea that it's going to be, well, we can put these barriers in place in 10 to 15 years, in in 13 to 15 years. But the funny thing is, if it had been 13 years and we had started when we started talking about it, it would have been done last year. Yeah. And here we are having not done it. And there's a guy running for mayor on a platform of doing it. Sure. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. You know what not we need? We need a new agency. <laughs> a new agency to fix our problems. <laughs> but Bev, McLaugh- Bev McLaughlin will fix all of this. Just get her on it. Um, I don't really know if there's much else to say. I know that... Um, yeah, just I mean, the only thing, other thing I would add is that there's this great front page story in the Globe today about uh, how the uh, latest appointee to the Supreme Court sucked and is getting all of her uh, previous yeah. rulings overturned on failures to understand basic law, which seems uh, part we, and parcel. Speaking of, and we've actually talked that... about her before in the Dispatch. We've talked yeah. about how she's underqualified for the job, and nobody wants to say that because she's indigenous. So, I I don't know enough about the law to say this, but I will tell you, my lawyer friends, when she was appointed, were like, "Huh, that's weird." Okay, maybe it'll be fine. And then now we're at the point where, and again, I don't I don't understand all the nuances of this. So what happened this week, I think, is that her one of her previous rulings was overturned on appeal, and like it was was bad, devastatingly overturned. It was like. With respect. Well, it wasn't like, you know, we find that on this incredibly arcane bit of legal theory that we're going 51% this way, but we acknowledge someone 49% could have been the other way. I, my understanding of this was that this was humiliating. Yeah. It's complete total. Should we try to get another dispatch blurb about this? We should. Now, the last time we talked about this, we actually outsourced this to someone who uh, was a lawyer and was an expert in the law and was actually fairly high profile, but wouldn't put their name to it. Um, We maybe want to reach out to that person again. I think we Um, might have to. We might have to, uh, because that person wrote a really excellent and devastating dispatch that explained just why this person was not competent to sit sit on the board, even though the fact that there were other Indigenous judges who people assumed were going to be tapped for the Supreme Court because they were eminently qualified. All these people were overlooked in favor of this like indigenous woman. And I think it had to do with the fact she was also bilingual. So she was like indigenous bilingual or something like that. I think that that's what it was. Um, And there, so therefore was, 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 was tapped to the, the, the bench. But I mean, it's the classic Trudeau pointee, you know, it was, it really was checked a box as opposed to was the best person for the job kind of thing. Um, Julie Payette would be the other classic example of of this. You know, they were elected for their, were appointed for their their sort of uh, characteristics and 
not necessarily for their their competency at the actual roles. Mercury, <laughs> Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. <laughs> for everybody who will get that, Jim. Just want, want everyone, to, good, just want everyone to make sure I you know. Can, I... You can, you could, you could definitely serve as a staff to the staff member to the, the governor general all the time, provided you could handle the emotional abuse. Um, I'm pretty dead inside it. It's true. You you'd be perfect for the job. Uh, anyway, so uh, this 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 was a pretty devastating case. The the Globe. I mean, the Globe is really, I think, the only paper who's seriously covering the Supreme Court. Sean Fine is is their their beat report out there, and and Matt props out to them. That was that was their their E one, and it was great. Um, but we may we may should maybe reach out to the our, our lawyer friends and ask if they want to. Hey, it's a long weekend, right? Like it's hard to find people, but you never know. You never know. Um, okay. Do we care? Uh, we'll, we'll wrap this up after this. Your kids are obviously mutinating. Yes. Um, do we care about space? The uh, the Canadian astronaut going around the moon. Yeah, in his chin. He looks exactly what you would expect an astronaut to look yeah. like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Central casting. It's amazing. Is that a worth Canadian, a, a Canadian is astronaut? That, is that worth a dispatch? The only thing for? Canada has going for it right now is that man's chin. Okay. That man's well, amazing chin. I mean. You know, one of the counter arguments against the Canada's broken thesis is just the individual accumulated skills of Canadians. And this, this has always been my thesis. And this is the only faith that I actually have in Canada is actually is, is not in the institutions. It's in my neighbors. As long as NASA can give them a ride. <laughs> as long as NASA can give them a ride. As long as somebody else's institutions are still functional, we're, we're fine. The second but, America falls apart, we're in real shit. Maybe that's actually the theme for the dispatch. Like, basically, what we need is just for NASA to start taking over everything, and we can plug in certain talents. NASA will now have to, like, let's outsource our per diems for the armed forces to NASA. No, basically, what we really need is America to just take over, and we'll just supply them with talent and raw materials. You know what? I I love America. Always have. The last thing I want to be is, like, Puerto Rico. Let's just put it that way. Well, right now, Canada may be broken, but I'm still happy I'm on this side of the border. Um, you may feel differently in 20 years. Oh, oh no, I'm, I, may, I may, may feel differently in six months. <laughs> um, so, like, I'm... The, America has a lot going for it, but it's also got big, big problems. If America doesn't actually explode into some kind of sectarian conflict, I'm Would bullish on them. Yes. I don't, I don't, I don't rule that out. No. Um well, that, that got dark. Um, anyway, look, I think that there's something to be said. It's like, hey, the counter the counterfactual or the counter thesis or the rebuttal to the Canada's broken theme is that, yes, there are still high-talent individuals. We make fucking amazing astronauts. We make fucking amazing astronauts. But but that person is, is a clear example of Canada at its best. We're still producing really fantastic individuals who managed to rise above the failures of the institutions. Air Force pilot, colonel, um, first first space mission but the guy god this guy does have an incredible chin yeah buzz lightyear well i mean i saw on twitter someone basically it's, said it's too much i don't find him attractive because it's too much it's just he's too perfect i don't like i like men who are a little ugly someone uh someone said on twitter it's like if you ask one of the ai art things to make <laughs> buzz lightyear in real life yes yes and that's canadian astronaut colonel jeremy hansen um all right. Well, look, I this is this is this is pretty brief, but I think that the, that it was we a quiet might, week. Oh, quiet Trump week. got indicted, but what are we going to say Never. about that? 
What are we going to say about that? I got nothing to say about that. Arraigned, technically. So I, got, I had to learn all the U.S. terminology this week. He was indicted last week. He was arraigned this week. Whatever. You know what we're trying to say here. No yeah. one got shot. No That's got what shot. I was worried about last week. So we got through a week with no one getting shot. Everything's fine. Everything's fine, Matt. You know, honestly, uh, okay, so let's, let's parse out who's going to write what. Let's reach out to hey, You know what? Here. Honestly, we might not write this thing till later. Let's just let's wait on that because we got a long weekend to get the sure. written thing. Okay. Paul, when do you want to put this out? When do you want to get the written one out? Uh, it kind of depends on how tomorrow rolls, to be honest with you, and who and how we want to parse it out. Let's just let's talk about that when we're off. All right, and let's also see if we can get someone to write on the Supreme Court, someone who knows yeah. their stuff better than we do. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, Jen, to you, your family. I know you got family visiting from out of town. Have a have a happy Easter, happy Passover to everybody celebrating. And if I'm right on the timing, happy Ramadan to people next week. Uh, but yeah, that's all I got. I'm googling this now. When is Ramadan? When is? Ramadan? I think it starts Tuesday. I'm not positive, but I or maybe Thursday. Nope. Evening of Wednesday, March 22nd to the evening of Thursday, April 20th. I was right. We are in yeah. Ramadan now. Mm-hmm. I thought it started next week. Mm-mm. I thought it went from the 13th to the 20th. Nope. 22nd to the, but it changes every year. All right. right? Well, I defer to you and your superior Ramadan knowledge, and I apologize to any Muslim listener. I honestly thought it started next week. Um, that's all I got. Okay. Happy Easter, happy Passover, and happy Ramadan. Okay, see you, Jen. You know, we laughed a little, we cried a little, we all learned something, mainly when Ramadan started. Sorry, guys, my bad. We hope you have a wonderful long weekend. We'll be back with you on Tuesday. We're going to take Easter Monday off. We already have some stuff lined up for next week. Take good care, folks. We'll catch you soon. For Jen Gerson, it's Matt Gurney. This has been the Line's latest episode of the Experimental Podcast.